Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. Tonight's sermon comes from Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. Revelation 1, 9 through 20. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Thus says the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, we thank you that you are a God who reveals yourself to your people and who speaks to us through your word. And we pray that you would do so tonight, Lord. We pray that you would speak to us through this passage and that you would show us your glory, that we would behold you in all of your fullness and splendor and majesty, that you would get the praise from us that you so rightly deserve. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. On July 21st, 1861, just outside of a town two hours south of here, Union and Confederate troops fought in the first battle of Bull Run, or if you were from the south, first battle of Manassas. And just as it looked like the superior Union forces were about to have their first major victory in the Civil War, the Confederate General Bernard B. 
was able to successfully rally his fleeing forces when he shouted, Look, men, there stands Jackson like a stone wall. Rally behind the Virginians. From that point on, the tide of the battle completely changed. And the Confederates breathed new life into the rebellion by winning a fight that they were supposed to lose. The man who inspired the victory was General Thomas J. Jackson, who had arrived just in time to provide reinforcements to his fleeing compatriots. Jackson's courage and heroic stand amidst a hail of gunfire from the enemy earned him perhaps the most famous nickname in military history, Stonewall Jackson. Now, of course, we are not to believe that Thomas J. Jackson literally became a stone wall. But that nickname and the imagery of a stone wall is meant to convey something to everyone who hears it about the man's unwavering courage and his performance that day on the field of battle. And the same thing can be said for the one who the Apostle John describes for us in our passage. You see, we too are, en are engaged in a great battle. But our battle is a spiritual war between Satan's forces of darkness and Christ's church. In Ephesians 6, uh, chapter 6, verse 12, the Apostle Paul writes, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And it's this cosmic spiritual battle that the Apostle John is describing for us in vivid and symbolic imagery all throughout the book of Revelation. And in our passage tonight, the Apostle John is rallying Christ's church by pointing us to our great God and King, whose mere presence strengthens, will strengthen our faith and give us the courage to continue to fight in this spiritual conflict. But first, the Apostle John begins in verse 9 by letting us know that no one is exempt from this war. There is no such thing as a non-combatant in the fight between good and evil. As a result, everyone who is in Christ can expect to experience great trouble and great suffering in this life, because that's what war is. And this tells us something very important, that just because this is a spiritual war does not mean that there, there won't be material casualties. Just because this is a spiritual war does not mean that there won't be material casualties. On the contrary, 
spiritual realities will always play themselves out in this physical life. And John himself is a great example of this point. You would think that if anyone in Christ's church might be spared from physical harm, it would be Jesus' own beloved disciple. But that's not the case. John tells us, John tells us this in, the, in, uh, in verse 9, that he has been exiled on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, John has been banished from society. He has been sent to prison by the Roman government for preaching the gospel and talking to too many people about Jesus. Thankfully, however, John also tells us that everyone who is in Christ and is afflicted by the same kind of tribulation can also expect to one day dwell and rule in Christ's kingdom. And until that kingdom is fully manifested and revealed, everyone who has put their faith and their hope in Jesus can also rely on Christ's Holy Spirit to help them patiently endure the trials and the challenges of this life. Now, before I move on from verse 9, I don't want to just breeze over this last point about patient endurance in Christ. While it's true that many of God's people do experience great joy and blessings in this life, and therefore we have much that we can rejoice over, we also need to realize that our material life must never be the source of our joy or the reason for our hope. More than joy, this material life for the Christian is described as a tribulation. John doesn't call it a joyful life. He calls it a tribulation. This life with all of its material niceties like iPhones and cool clothes and fancy cars is a tribulation that we are called to patiently endure. We are not called to revel in it. We're called to endure it. And endure it we must. Because the minute we begin to find our satisfaction or our identity in the material things of this life, that's the minute we risk being captured by the enemy. And being seduced by the things that this world has to offer will always be a constant threat for the people of God, which is why we need to be vigilant and to guard against it. And the very best way we can guard against it is by casting our eyes on Jesus Christ, who the Apostle John describes for us so vividly in his post-resurrection and glorified state. But like Stonewall Jackson, John's description of Jesus is not meant to tell us how Jesus really looks in his resurrected body. I'm sure that if you Googled this passage, you would see all kinds of weird images that don't make any sense. But rather, John's description of Jesus is meant to tell us something of Christ's character. 
which in turn is meant to give us hope and courage for the spiritual struggle that lies ahead. So now let's go on to consider how John describes Christ's appearance in this chapter. And this is where I need to offer you an apology in advance because I'm going to get down in the weeds. There's unfortunately a lot of explaining uh, that needs to be done. So if you could bear with me, I would really appreciate it. In verse 10, John compares Christ's voice to the sound of a trumpet. And then in verse 15, he compares his voice again to the roar of many waters. But what exactly is significant about a trumpet and the sound of roaring waters? Why is John making these comparisons? Well, in order to, for us to understand and appreciate the point that John is making, we need to be familiar with the Old Testament. Because in Exodus 19, when Yahweh descended on Mount Sinai to make a covenant with the children of Israel, his presence was accompanied by thunders and lightnings and a very loud trumpet blast. And this loud presence was so terrifying that it caused the entire nation of Israel to tremble in fear. We read about a similar occurrence in Ezekiel 43. Only there, the coming of the Lord's presence is described as the sound of many waters. And so John's vision of Christ's appearance is communicating to both John and to us that whoever is speaking to him in this instance can be none other than Yahweh himself. And this also goes to show us that the God we see in the Old Testament is no different from the God that we see in the New Testament. God's character does not change. And how he speaks to his people in the time of Moses is no different than how he speaks to his people in the time of John during the church age. The God we worship here every Lord's Day is the same God who appeared to Israel on Mount Sinai. Jesus is Yahweh. Next, in verse 13, John goes on to describe Jesus as one like a son of man, which is a title from Daniel 7 that describes the prophesied Messiah as the ruler of this universe. According to Daniel, this son of man is divine. He dwells in eternity. He possesses ultimate authority, and he reigns over an indestructible kingdom. Now, during his earthly ministry, Jesus applied the title Son of Man to himself for the purpose of identifying himself with fallen humanity. But here, in John's vision, the title is being used to express majesty and power and authority that no created being can even come close to rivaling. rivaling. Next, we see in verse 13, 
that the Son of Man is wearing a long robe with a golden sash around his chest, which is a description of high priestly attire. This is what the high priest wore in the temple and in the tabernacle. And thus John's vision of Jesus is emphasizing what we read about him elsewhere. For example, in Hebrews chapter 4, where it says, we, where we are told that Christ was designated by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, who offered himself once and for all as a perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And not only did Christ offer himself as a sacrifice, but he now lives forever to intercede for his people in the presence of God. But what's also very interesting about this Son of Man is that John sees him standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands, which we are told in verse 20 represent the seven churches. And this makes complete sense when we, when we remember that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus himself told his followers that they are the light or lamp of the world. So then these seven lampstands represent the churches of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. But before we go on, we must not think that the book of Revelation is only meant for these seven congregations as they existed in the time of John. Certainly all of Revelation does apply to them, but it's not only for them. And we know this because when it comes to the book of Revelation, the number seven is very significant. And when we see this number, we must remember to interpret it in light of its Old Testament significance. So, for example, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, we read, And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Therefore, in light of Genesis 2-2, the seven churches in Asia are symbolic of the whole or the finished or the completed church of God. So then what we see here in Revelation so far is that Jesus is our great high priest interceding for his people before God. And yet, he also walks amongst his people in their very presence, ministering to them, tending to their needs, to ensure that we keep burning and that our light never goes out. In other words, it is Jesus who sustains and nurtures the faith of all true believers and thereby makes us effective witnesses for the sake of the gospel. Then in verse 14, John makes a shift in his description of Jesus. He describes seeing the Son of Man with a head of hair as white as wool, like snow. 
Now, what's interesting about this description is that this is how the prophet Daniel describes God the Father, who Daniel refers to as the Ancient of Days. And so, why do we see John describing God the Son, Jesus Christ, in the same way that Daniel describes God the Father? Well, the point is this, that the Father and the Son, though the, though the, though the Father and the Son are distinct persons within the Godhead, they are both God and therefore can be described in the same terms. Jesus, God the Son, and God the Father have similar descriptions because they are both God. John then moves on to say that this Son of Man had eyes that were like a flame of fire. And these flaming eyes are symbolic of judgment. For these eyes see through and disclose everything. Which is why the writer of Hebrews says, that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the, eyes of, uh, to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. All creatures are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. In other words, there is no fooling Christ. There is no such thing as hiding your sin from God. God will not be mocked, and he will hold us accountable for both our known and our unknown sins. And those who don't truly belong to him, he will cast from his presence, which is what we heard in this morning's sermon. Next, we see that Jesus, this Son of Man, has feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, which is symbolic for moral purity, which tells us why Christ has the right and the authority to judge mankind. The fact that Christ has these burnished bronze feet tells us that he has the right to judge mankind. Christ has the authority to judge because unlike us, he is perfect. He is morally pure and upright. Though he was tempted and tried in every way that we are, he upheld God's law perfectly. As a result, the right to judge mankind belongs to him and him alone. And as our judge, he rewards those who do well and obey him with blessings, and those who rebel against him he punishes with curses. Which is why we see a sharp, double-edged sword coming from his mouth in verse 16. This double-edged sword is symbolic for Christ's prerogative to both bless and to curse those whom he judges. And this judgment will begin with the church's pastors and elders who are represented by the seven stars that Jesus holds in his right hand. Now in verse 20, we are told that these seven stars represent the angels of the seven churches. 
And while many commentators believe that these are special angels in heaven who oversee and care for the church, there are just as many commentators who think that this word for angels is best understood or interpreted as messengers. The Greek word for angel can also be interpreted as messengers. And therefore, these seven stars in Christ's right hand, we are to understand if that's the case, are the leaders of the church who have the responsibility to deliver the word of God to the people of God. Lastly, we see that this Son of Man has a face that was like the sun shining in full strength. And this tells, this tells us for certain that the figure that we are seeing in our passage is, in fact, Jesus. Because this is also how Jesus appeared to Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration where the disciples heard the voice of God and saw Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah. But what's interesting is how John responds to this incredible vision of Jesus. We must remember that no one was as close to Jesus than John was. John was his beloved disciple. So you might think that John would go running to greet Jesus with a hug. But instead, look at what he does. He falls down as though dead in fear. And this is a good reminder for us all that Jesus is not our homeboy. He's not our imaginary friend that comforts us when we're going through a difficult time. He is the all-powerful Lord of the universe who is also our great high priest and judge. And therefore, we are to take his character and his command, and we are not to take his character or his commands lightly. But we are to give him our utmost respect and allegiance. We are to revere our Lord and Savior. Next, thankfully, Jesus assures both John and us that all who are truly his servants have no need to fear him. We need not be deathly afraid of our Lord and Savior. And the reason is that our great high priest, our great high priest and king, has taken sin's punishment for us. He has died in our place, and behold, he is alive forevermore. This is what Jesus says about himself. And his resurrection from the grave has vindicated him as the truly righteous one. For if he was another sinner, the grave would have conquered him. But Jesus' resurrection from the grave vindicates him as truly righteous and therefore worthy to live forevermore. And as a result, our great high priest now possesses the keys to death and Hades as his reward for his obedience to God the Father. Jesus possesses the keys to death and Hades. Think about how comforting that is for you and me. 
that our Lord and Savior who forever lives to intercede and plead for us at God's right hand has complete control over death itself. And therefore, the thing that is meant to cause us the most pain and anguish in this life has lost its power over us. Because one day, we will be made like our Lord in resurrected body and soul in a new heavens and a new earth where there will be no more sorrow, pain, or grief. Furthermore, this great high priest and judge of ours is also the first and the last, meaning that he is sovereign or in complete control over all of history. From the beginning of time to the end of time, there is nothing that happens to the people of God that will not work out for our ultimate good according to God's plans. So then, in closing, as a people in the midst of this spiritual warfare, I can't think of a greater figure for us to cast our eyes upon. In Jesus Christ, we can find the comfort, the courage, and the hope we need to continue to fight the good fight of faith. Only we must never take our eyes off of him. He alone is the source of our strength. Look to Christ. And not only should we look to Christ, but as we look to him, we should be exhorting others to look to Christ as well. John, uh, Jesus, the Son of Man, tells John to write down the things that he has seen, the things that are and the things that will be, and to send this message to the seven churches. And that should be our business too. As followers of Christ, we are to be in the business of sharing with people the things, the truths that we have seen in God's word. We should be in the business of telling people the way things really are. This life is not all there is. It is hopeless seduction meant to deceive. And we should be in the business of telling people that there is a greater hope and a greater salvation for them than whatever this world can offer. Let us cast our eyes upon Christ, but let us also exhort those around us to cast our eyes upon Christ with us. And may we never grow tired of beholding our great Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you once again for... Your word, I thank you that you are a God who reveals yourself to your people. I thank you for Jesus Christ, our great high priest and our judge. Lord, I thank you that he lives forevermore to intercede for us. I thank you that he has conquered the grave. I rejoice that he has conquered death itself. And because of him, we have hope to live for all eternity in your glorious presence. Lord, we pray that that day would come quickly. We pray that we would know you as you fully and truly are. 
We pray that we would never grow tired of beholding your awesome power and grace and love and beauty. Lord, give us hearts that long for you. Give us hearts to long, that long to see you. And would you, Lord, dwell amongst your people once again. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.